I'm Dave Rubin and this is the Rubin Report. Make sure that you're subscribed and click the notification bell, otherwise we're just talking to ourselves over here. And joining me today is the chairman of the Federal Communications Commission, aka the FCC, Ajit Pai. Welcome to the Rubin Report. Hey, thanks so much for having me on, Dave. I am uh, thrilled to have you here because I don't know that I've ever had a guest that probably has more power to do more things relative to the thing that I do than you. So that's a lot of pressure, my friend. A lot of pressure, but I hopefully uh, will be able to quit myself well. We'll yeah. see. <laughs> <laughs> we shall see. Okay, before we do anything else, there is a meme of you. You are a so meme. So yes. You are a memed person because you have a giant mug, a coffee mug, of a Reese's Pieces logo coffee mug. Right. And this thing has caught fire on the internet. How did this even come to pass? Why do you have this mug? It's so random. So about 10 years ago, I was up in Hershey, Pennsylvania with my then girlfriend, now wife, and I love coffee. I love Reese's peanut butter cups. And I saw this giant mug and I thought, oh, this is the perfect uh, mind meld. And so I just bought it. And uh, at our FCC meetings, sometimes they would drag on for a while, and I'm an inveterate coffee drinker. So I just brought this mug down to our monthly meetings, started drinking out of it, and uh, then John Oliver did the skit about two and a half years ago, yeah. mocked the mug, and ever since then, I'm always getting these emails, tweets, and whatnot. You, know, you and your mug. You know, I always think the, the mug was the innocent party. It's, it's a kind of big collateral mug damage. It's, it's a, also a giant mug. It is. So I actually just... measured it out as six liquid cups of wow. like, and so I go through about two cups of those a day, uh, two mugs a day of coffee and so it's a fair amount of uh, caffeine that's going through the veins but it's kind of funny how it's taken on a life of its own all right well you kept the coffee mug it's our coffee mug we tried to yeah, buy you the uh... Reese's coffee mug for the show but it was a, we were on a time crunch so we couldn't pull it off but ah yes I have brought you Reese's pieces <laughs> just in time for Halloween just right, in time yeah. for Halloween so I'll just put that there and if you so choose to eat a Reese's throughout the interview feel free well but yeah if you I, don't get mind. the coffee I don't know what you're doing <laughs> yeah no I, I could take it intravenously if I could but uh, <laughs> but no I hope you don't mind if I uh, maybe take a break every now and then just start munching on it and, that's uh, fine okay so there's a ton of stuff I want to talk to you about yeah. obviously I, I've never been uh, more sure that either YouTube is going to completely crush this episode in the algorithm or make sure that everyone sees it to thus prove that they don't mess around with things. So I want to spend obviously a lot of time talking about tech regulation and all that. And I want a little bit about your history and what the FCC was set out to do versus what it does now and all of those things. Um, but sort of broadly to start, how much time do you guys now have to spend on just purely the tech issues related to censorship rather than just pretty much anything else that the FCC has ever done? It's a decent amount of time, not so much because we directly regulate them. Under the current law, we don't have authority to regulate some of the Silicon Valley tech giants, but in part because we do regulate, broadly speaking, the infrastructure of the internet. And issues like net neutrality, of course, have been at the fore for a couple of years. Oh, and we're so, going to talk about that. We're, we're still <laughs> alive. Yeah. We're still here, man. Somehow the internet it. still works. And yeah. so, uh, uh, but so we do monitor a lot of these issues that have come up. Uh, and it's a fascinating how much the conversation has changed. When I started talking about this two years ago, it was thought to be sort of an outlier opinion to go after some of the Silicon Valley tech giants for some of the policies, or the lack of transparency in particular. And now, you see members of both parties and both houses of Congress, people on the campaign trail, average American consumers saying, what's going on here? We want more insight into how these companies are doing business. And so we spend a fair amount of time on that. There are other issues, though, that occupy the lion's share of my time. 5G, closing the digital divide, attacking unwanted robocalls, doing those kinds of uh, bread and butter uh, tasks that the FCC has been uh, entrusted with. Right. Okay. So let's just 
back up fully and what just tell people that have no idea they they hear FCC they're not exactly sure what it means what it's supposed to do what was the FCC designed to do originally so it was designed in 1934 to regulate uh, the radio airwaves and the telephone system uh, the primary means of communication back then and our statute is called the Communications Act of 1934 that act has been updated over the years uh, most recently in 1996 in substantial part and uh, now our jurisdiction has grown over the years. It's not just radio and TV and telephone. Now, of course, we have jurisdiction over satellite issues, cable companies, to some extent, internet infrastructure. And so it's uh, composed of five commissioners, each of which uh, has to be nominated by the president, confirmed by the Senate. Uh, one commissioner is designated as the chairman, and uh, that happens to be me right now. I'm very, yeah. very blessed uh, to be in that position. But there's a huge staff, about 1,500 people or so, to help us do all of the work across these different areas. And they do fantastic work from volunteering to serve in Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria to going to tribal reservations in the Mountain West to help get broadband to these hard to serve areas. And they are the eyes and ears of the commission. I'm at the top of the pyramid, so to speak, but they really deserve all the credit for the good work we do. How'd you get involved? in the FCC. What what made you the chairman of the FCC? Honestly, complete accident. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I Honestly, I uh, became a lawyer uh, after graduating from college, much to my parents' chagrin. I didn't go to medical school, but uh, <laughs> uh, I'm trying to live up to... Is that tough for Indian parents? I, I, it was an interesting conversation. Yeah, I told them I'm a lawyer, not a doctor. That's what? like a big hit, right? I, I still remember my graduation party after uh, college. Uh, my parents organized a uh, little party for me in my hometown, and uh, one of my parents' friends came and said, oh, you know, that's okay. It's Not everyone can get into medical school. It's like a nice little pat on the bat that's uh, back. And so it's sort of funny. Every now and then I try to explain to my parents uh, what it is I do. And when I told them I was going to be nominated for this position uh, by President Obama back in 2011, my mom's first three questions out of the gate were, is this a full-time job? Does it pay? And if it doesn't work out, can you go back to the law firm? Where <laughs> She still wasn't quite sure what it was that I did, but I finally got across the That's actually You show her the letter from Obama, and it's like, is this a full-time job? Yeah, it's, I told her this is a real job. And even then, for a while, she wasn't sure what I did. But a couple of years ago, I was in L.A. for some meetings and uh, was going to see Judge Judy, because I'm a huge Judge Judy fan. Yeah. And I told my mom on a Friday, hey, I'm meeting Judge Judy on a Monday. She canceled all of her patients for Monday, flew down to L.A. with me, and she got to meet the judge. And so, and she never told me afterward, but her friends told me, Ajit, she's so proud of you. That's you it. got her in to see Judge Judy. Not getting nominated by the president, not closing the digital divide, it's Judge Judy, the highest court in the land, getting her into that courtroom. That was an accomplishment. At the end of the day, it's still about parental approval. Yeah, yeah. So I think the candle still burns. Hopefully, uh, after this job is over, I think she may want me to go to medical school. But uh, for better or worse, I'm uh, in this role for now. Yeah. Okay. So as the guy in this role, um, can you explain a little bit about your just personal philosophy when it comes to what should be regulated, what should be completely left to the market, and where those two things kind of meet? Yeah. So I have some basic principles that guide uh, my work across these different areas areas that we've talked about. Uh, fairly simple principles, but I think they're important for regulators to keep in mind. One is that markets, not preemptive regulation, have delivered far more value for American consumers over time. And number two, the rule of law really matters. Administrative agencies like ours can't just make it up. The law has been set by Congress and passed by, enacted by the president. Ultimately, we can't make a decision that doesn't have a grounding in law. And third, and increasingly importantly in this field, we have to res respect basic principles of economics. Things might seem like great ideas, but if the cost-benefit analysis doesn't work, if the, you know, the, the different economic principles that apply to our work aren't respected, 
ultimately, you'll have a very elegant plan on paper that ends up foundering on the rocks of reality. So we try to respect those three principles in everything we do. And it's not easy. Oftentimes, you're going to make a lot of people unhappy. But our job, at the end of the day, is to deliver value for the American consumer even when, or especially when, it might not be popular. Does it strike you that, that your job, or, or anyone that's in government that has anything to do with regulation, that the optics of the job seem much harder now, where oh my God. you know, yeah. 30 years ago, it was like, okay, you're regulating the airwaves, there's a couple channels, you know, we're on our way to cable, but if you do something, like the pushback is only gonna be a certain amount because it's just how it is, there's only a limit, you, know, you might get a letter in the mail or something like that, or, yeah. or some phone calls to your office, where now everything that you guys do, and almost anyone that's in the public eye at any level, it becomes like an absolute firestorm. It must, it must complicate the job at a certain level. I think it does, and that's actually a very good point. So I've gotten to know all of my living predecessors, uh, save one, going all the way back to Newt Minow, who was President Kennedy's first FCC chairman from 61 to 63. Wow. Had lunch with him a couple of years ago, and I was talking about some of the things we're working on and how exposed the job was, you know, social media and you know, cable news networks covering the stuff and all the rest. And he stopped me and said, I don't know how I could do this job yeah. now, because back in the 60s, you had three major broadcast channels, your local radio station, your local newspaper, and that was pretty much it. I mean, satellite hadn't really uh, taken off yet. Cable wasn't a real thing. And so it's just a very different job now. And that raises a lot of challenges. Everything we do is going to be uh, scrutinized and uh, there's going to be a lot of commentary about it. And I think it's fair to say that uh, you are, the SEC is much better known now than it's ever been known before, and that does have some positive impacts. I try to talk about the positive things we do as well, but there's no question that the exposure for this position, for our agency generally, has made it a lot more challenging than it used to be. This episode of The Rubin Report comes to you with support from our friends over at Bravo Company Manufacturing. In the Second Amendment, the Founding Fathers guaranteed an individual the right to protect themselves. Owning a rifle is an awesome responsibility, and building rifles is no different. Started in a garage by a Marine veteran more than two decades ago, Bravo Company Manufacturing, or BCM for short, builds a professional-grade product which is built to combat standards. This is because BCM believes that the same level of protection should be provided to every American, regardless if they're a private citizen or a professional. Bravo Company Manufacturing is not a sporting arms company. They design, engineer, and manufacture life-saving equipment. BCM assumes that when a rifle leaves their shop, it'll be used in a life-or-death situation by a responsible citizen, law enforcement officer, or a soldier overseas, so quality is of utmost value to them. Every component of a BCM rifle is hand-assembled and tested by Americans in Heartland, Wisconsin to a life-saving standard. BCM has always put people before products. They build their products because they feel it is their moral responsibility as Americans to provide tools that will not fail the end user when it's not just a paper target, but someone coming to do them harm. Because of this, BCM knows that making reliable, life-saving tools is only half the story. They also work with leading instructors of marksmanship from top levels of America's special operations forces. To learn more about Bravo Company Manufacturing, head on over to bravocompanymfg.com where you can discover more about their products, special offers, and upcoming news. That's bravocompanymfg.com. Need more convincing? Find out even more about BCM and the awesome people who make their products at youtube.com slash bravocompanyusa. And now back to the show. How much does the, the sort of changing technology kind of affect what you do or sort of expose the way things were done in the past? So like right now, for example, if we were doing this on television, even whether it was network or cable, yeah. there's a lot of limitations to what we could say, uh, the types of things we could show, things like that, 
versus we're doing this on the internet. Now we're, we're on YouTube and podcasts, so there are some limitations, right? But right. like we can't show porn or something like that, but like pretty much it's the Wild West out here. So you guys have different rules depending on the medium. How, how sort of complicated is that these days? You've put your finger on one of the central problems in communications policy is that Congress sets the law and that law reflects a snapshot of the marketplace in a moment in time. And that snapshot, especially in the technology sector, very quickly becomes yellowed with age. And so we hear constantly, for example, from broadcast TV companies saying, look, we're competing in the same space with Google and Facebook and other companies who don't face the same legacy regulations that we have to deal with. You need to change that. And mm -hmm. Different sectors of the economy say the same thing. There's always the problem of government trying to fit the square peg of the marketplace into the round hole of the law. So what do you uh, say to those guys when they say that? Because that's a pretty compelling argument, I think. I mean, sometimes now you watch, yeah. like we have regulations on what commercials could say be on television versus the internet. Yeah. Pretty much anything could be out there. So the way I think about it, the, the what thing I told my team from the beginning and I've told them every day since is, Think about where the marketplace is right now. How would you construct a regulatory framework to deal with the marketplace as it stands today? And to the maximum extent permitted by law, we should adjust our regulations, modernize them to reflect that marketplace. And I rely on one of my favorite political philosophers, and I know he's somebody, you've drawn a tremendous amount of wisdom as well, Yoda, who in The Empire Strikes <laughs> Back when he's training Luke and Degawa. I thought you were maybe going John Locke, but no, I'm, yeah. I'm willing to No, much more profound this. than that. I mean, yeah, private yeah. property, very important, yeah. but Yoda, when he's okay, training Luke really and Degawa. Yeah. yeah, and so, at one point when he's training Luke, he says, you must unlearn what you have learned. And that is so true when it comes to Washington. The regulatory impulse is so strong. When you see an Uber or a Lyft, oh, that's a taxi cab company. Let's, let's slap all the taxi cab regulations on it. Airbnb, oh, that's a hotel company. Same thing in the telecom sector, too. Let's try to shoehorn all of these legacy regulations onto these new companies and to maintain those legacy regulations on the established companies. My goal is pretty simple, to just modernize our regulations to reflect the marketplace we're in. Unlearn learn what you have learned when it comes to telecom policy, and you'll unleash all kinds of innovation and investment that ultimately benefits consumers. We don't want to disincentivize companies from competing and innovating because ultimately the consumer welfare, uh, the, the consumer welfare is what's at stake here. More importantly than any of this, where, where are you at with the new Star Wars? Yeah, so this, uh, I, I, I haven't uh, really been a big fan, except for, I will say, um, I thought uh, uh, Force Awakens was okay. Yes, Force but Awakens was fine. I thought Rogue One. Yeah. That was awesome. I mean, the, I need more Force. Really? Yeah, without the Force. I know, that ending scene, though, was yeah, incredible. No, the ending was amazing. I mean, because yeah. then it really feeds into the first scene in the episode four, and it's, uh, but, no, Force Awakens was pretty good, yeah. I thought, so. Uh, you give me two hours of the last five minutes of Rogue One, two hours of just an onslaught, then I'm thrilled. But all right, let's not, let's not get <laughs> Lost there because I sense we could probably do that for for a couple hours. Um, so a lot of this is sort of just fighting the Washington machine, right? Like yeah. sort of the machine itself is designed to create regulation, right? So they see something like Uber come out. Now everyone loves Uber and it's changing the business. But now you've got all these interests with the taxi companies, and then suddenly you then have to fight the impulse to. Yeah, basically crush them too. Yeah, that, that that's a pretty amazing position to be in. It's very difficult, and uh, there are two very powerful forces uh, in Washington. One is regulatory inertia; that it's very easy to maintain the rules on the books because they've always been on the books, and they should always, therefore, be on the books. But the other one is uh, some of the entrenched interests that say, "Look, no matter any regulatory change is going to disadvantage somebody," and so they will complain. Those people who are affected will have a disproportionate voice; they'll be very loud about it, and so. That's part of the challenge as well, to try to have the long-term value of the, a greater number of people in mind when we make our decisions. So let's talk about that a little bit, like the, the lobbying situation. 
how much of the influence that hits you is lobbyists from either telecommunications companies or free speech organizations or whatever it might be. Yeah, every sector, uh, I think, uh, has uh, has a grievance or, uh, to share with the agency, but our goal can, is... Can you explain a little bit about how it works? So you're in your office, your assistant yeah. says to you, all right, you got a couple meetings today, and now you know some lobbyists are coming in. Like, what what is the process actually like? So, yeah, I have a lot of meetings uh, every day that I'm in the office in Washington, and what often happens is uh, people will sit on my couch, very much like we're sitting here, and they'll tell me, Ajit, you're doing a great job on this and that and this and that. Uh, we are all in favor of this. We are big free market advocates. On this particular issue, <laughs> there's, there's one little coming, tweak, yeah. and it's, it's amazing yeah. how many times that happens. I mean, I did a roundtable recently uh, out on the road, and it was striking. One of the biggest innovations we've introduced, we, we have a $10 billion subsidy fund known as the Universal Service Fund. Typically, this consisted of cutting checks to rural telephone companies and saying, you know, we hope you build broadband networks with this funding. One of the major innovations I introduced about two years ago when I just got on board was, instead of just cutting a check, let's have an auction, a reverse auction, where all kinds of companies using tech different technologies have to compete for this funding, and there's a downward pressure on prices, it's technologically neutral, saves the taxpayer money, yada, yada, much more efficient at uh, serving the cause. Uh, I, can, I was doing this roundtable, and they said, we love all of the stuff you're doing on the Universal Service Fund. It might be helpful, though, to, car to exempt us from the auction mechanism, because it just be, because, look, I understand from their business perspective, it makes sense, but my goal can't be to vindicate any private interest. It is not mm -hmm. to vindicate any mm -hmm. private interest. It's to uphold the public interest, and that's going to make people unhappy in many cases, because many business plans m might not survive or might not thrive in an environment where that kind of competition is embraced by the regulator. So let's back up a little bit to your philosophy again, which basically you're saying free markets, you want them to do as much as possible, and yeah. yet you're the guy that has to come in and, and give some regulation around the public good. What, what do you think would happen? So this maybe is, this is like sort of the, the purest libertarian approach. What do you think would happen if, you, if just basically the regulations just all disappeared and just the free market just was allowed to do whatever whatever it wants related to all of these issues around communication. Like what, what do you think question. actually would happen? I think it's, that's a very good question. Uh, by so the way, I'm, so gonna, I'm gonna move this because otherwise, <laughs> I, I, I realize that if we, if we leave this the entire time, the amount of memes that will come out that you had an hour long conversation with a Reese's bar on the table, oh my so God. I'm just gonna. It's become the MacGuffin already <laughs> in the interview. I'm gonna, that's, <laughs> yeah, uh, for exactly. those film buffs out you can, there. You can have it later. You promise? Well, let's just see how it finishes up. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll see how it goes. But, yeah. uh, uh, but your question was about uh, the lack of regulation altogether. And I, I'm not one who says necessarily that we need to scrap everything. For example, uh, in terms of setting spectrum policy, it's important for us to coordinate among different uh, government agencies and the private sector. Uh, but I do think that uh, it would be an interesting experiment in some of these areas if the government got out of the business. I'll give you one example. Uh, back in 1975, one of my predecessors instituted a rule prohibiting newspapers and broadcast TV and radio stations from combining because that was seen to be uh, detrimental to competition. Does anyone really think in 2019 that local newspapers right. or local radio stations are the dominant force in any particular market, especially some of the smaller markets? I mean, I don't really think so. So if we got rid of regulations there, I don't think it would lead to all this consolidation. To the contrary, it would enable them to compete with the Googles and the Facebooks and the Pandoras and Spotify's and others who are out there distributing information. And so, to me at least, I think it's an interesting thought exercise. And as that denominator, so to speak, grows, as more people start to compete in the same space, I think it's important for government to have an intellectually honest assessment of what competition is. That denominator is much broader than broadcast radio, for example. It's all those streaming services and podcasts and all the rest of it that mm -hmm. uh, people, the people just want to consume information. Information, honestly, is the denominator in many cases.
So I, I think there's probably a certain amount of people listening to this going, all right, he's down with the free markets. He's trying <laughs> to use the light touch when possible. Yeah. How was this guy nominated by Obama? This sounds more like, say, a, a conservative or a Republican approach. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so uh, traditionally, uh, commissioners who are in the minority, so the FCC, I should have backed up, um, the five commissioners that I mentioned, three of whom are of the president's party, two are uh, of the minority party, the party out of power. So I was nominated in 2011, confirmed in 2012 for one of the minority party seats. And by tradition, going back a couple of decades, the leader of the par- the, the Senate leader of the party out of power makes a recommendation to the White House on who those minority commissioners should be. And so in my case, Senator McConnell recommended to President Obama, uh, we were recommended Jeet for this slot. So, so the president the still has to say it's okay, even though you're the ones getting the minority slot. That's right. kind of interesting. Yeah, so it's a very so, interesting So he process. still has the power to stop that minority person? from uh, Theoretically, yes. Huh. And so uh, fortunately, I fell through the cracks. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I <laughs> had good friends on both sides of the aisle and yeah. got confirmed unanimously, so it wasn't an issue. But it's a very interesting model of uh, governance. And I think a lot of the cabinet departments, of course, which is just out of a secretary, have a very different model where it's more of a single person in charge of the agency. So how much then of your job is coordinating with the president. I mean, do things really... So I'm, from what I can understand, it sounds like Trump is probably more in line with your... Uh, your philosophy around this, but does that even matter that much? Did you see a big difference from when Obama was there to now? So that's an interesting point. We are actually an independent agency. So once we are confirmed by the Senate, we're off to the races. We don't answer to anybody. We are independent from the administration, independent from Congress, although we, of course, respect I assume they can create headaches for you. Oh, absolutely. And there are certain issues, especially when it comes to security, for example, or some spectrum issues where we have to coordinate with, say, the Department of Defense or the National Security Council, where we do work with uh, White House and, and administration agencies all the time. But uh, one of the things that the president-elect told me when I interviewed for the job in January 2017 was, I'm giving you this job because I believe you're going to do a, a, a terrific things. Do the job. You know, I'm trusting you with this responsibility because I know you'll execute as you see fit and we'll back you up 100% of the way. And so that's been largely what it's uh, all been about. We've been pursuing a lot of different initiatives and uh, they've been supportive, as, uh, especially on things like 5G, where we think it's a national priority, not just an FCC priority for America to lead the world in this next generation technology. Your genes aren't just about you, it's something you share with the people closest to you. And uncovering potential health issues early can help empower you with information, enabling you and your family to move toward a healthier future. Introducing Ancestry Health from Ancestry. With Ancestry Health, you can discover how your DNA might influence certain health conditions and the steps you can take with a healthcare provider to chart a healthier path forward. Ancestry Health gives you personalized health reports that are easy to understand with actionable insights, access to genetic counseling resources, and a family health history tool to track generations of health. So learn from your genes and take action for your family. Go to Ancestry.com slash Ruben to learn more and get your Ancestry Health Kit today. That's Ancestry.com slash Ruben. Ancestry Health includes laboratory tests developed and performed by an independent CLIA certified laboratory partner and with oversight from an independent clinician network of board certified physicians and genetic counselors. Ancestry Health is not currently available in New York, New Jersey, or Rhode Island. And now back to the show. So what's happening with 5G right now? Because I think now in L.A., in certain spots, I am seeing 5G. It just pops up on my phone. And I remember, you know, I was traveling a lot in the last year that certain cities, I would get it. And I'd be like, whoa, I didn't even know this was a thing. So how does that actually work when you guys are trying to build a nationwide network? 
Yeah, so 5G is going to be tremendous. 100 times faster speeds than 4G, if not quicker than that. Much lower latency, a quicker responsiveness of the network, and also all kinds of applications we can't even dream of. So we're just in the early stages right now. The wireless carriers are doing some deployments in major cities, including Los Angeles, and we're hopeful that that's going to ramp up in the future. I think we're going to have 92 commercial deployments across the country by the end of this year. Many more are coming. And so our goal is to just put the building blocks in place for companies to innovate. That involves spectrum. We're getting a lot more spectrum into the commercial marketplace. Uh, held a big auction in January, another one finished up in May. The biggest auction in American history is going to be on December 10th. And this year alone, we're going to push more spectrum in the commercial marketplace than is held by every mobile broadband provider combined when it came to office. And so huge influx of supply. On the infrastructure side, too, we're modernizing our rules to recognize that small cells, essentially infrastructure that's no bigger than, say, that basketball, shouldn't have to jump through the same regulatory hoops as a 200-foot cell tower. And that's the kind of thing that has real pop here in L.A. in particular. Just yesterday morning, I was visiting a, a site where they're deploying these small cells in a lower-income neighborhood, thanks in part to the regulatory streamlining that we've done and the city of L.A., believe it or not, has done. They have now have the regulatory... They're helping you? The city of they, L.A. is helping you? I've got to say, Mayor Garcetti has been a terrific <laughs> partner on this issue. Other cities have raised a, a little few more roadblocks, but those cities that are forward-thinking, that want their citizens to benefit from 5G, are adopting this more modern approach to infrastructure deployment. So... Overall, I think the United States is poised to lead, but there are other countries too, particularly China, that would love to seize the lead for themselves. And so we're in an implicit competition, I think, with many countries and regions around the world. Yeah, so right before we started, we talked about this issue with how China deals with regulation yeah. differently and there there's strengths and weaknesses to it. Can you explain that a little bit? Because I think it's, it's a really fascinating flip on the way we talk about a lot of these issues. It is. So China, of course, is not a democracy. Uh, Beijing can dictate uh, not just what policy priorities the government should follow, but also require all provinces, all localities to fall into line. And so, of course, since they don't observe the same democratic niceties we do, in this case, they can simply fiat, we want to lead the world in 5G. That means we're going to pick the companies that create the equipment and subsidize them. We're going to make sure that our wireless carriers can deploy at scale. And they don't have to jump through these regulatory hoops. And uh, we are otherwise going to take the steps necessary to free up spectrum and do the other things necessary for 5G success. So that kind of sounds good at some level, right? But, right. Yeah. But there are, of course, uh, some concerns uh, for those who share democratic values, such as the United States. Comparatively here, we have not just federal uh, regulatory approval that's required, state and local regulatory approval that's required in many cases, but also under a long-standing system that the FCC set up many years ago, uh, any one of the 573 federally recognized Indian tribes also can have a bite at the regulatory apple. So one of the points I've made is that let's try to modernize that framework to say that there's a consistent level of regulation, especially if you're a smaller company. You don't have the lawyers and accountants mm -hmm. and compliance officers to jump through all of these four different layers or review. And to the extent that capital is scarce and work crews don't have to be hired and networks don't have to be built, I don't want that innovative spirit to be directed to other parts of the world where you can deploy at scale. And that's part of the reason why we've been trying to work with localities like LA to update that framework, to make it more streamlined and e just easier and cheaper to build these networks. So in effect, while China can just say, all right, we're doing this and no local province can do anything about it. And, and while that may work for now, like it may make the process faster for now while you have to deal with local states and all that, yeah. in the long term, it probably hurts their ability to innovate because it's all coming from the top. Right. You guys have more of a slog to fight through now, but the hope is that you're creating the, the groundwork sort of to allow as much competition as possible that, through the, yeah. the cell companies, basically. Exactly right. And yeah, part of the reason why I want this regulatory modernization is not just to be able to compete with other countries, but also because we recognize, and this is one of the truths that hardly ever gets recognized in Washington, that 
heavy-handed regulation and multiple levels of regulation disproportionately affect smaller companies. It's the larger companies that don't have the compliance res that have the compliance resources mm -hmm. that can jump through a lot of these hoops. Sure, it'll cost them money, but they actually have the resources to comply. We don't want to squeeze out some of the smaller competitors, and especially in the technology space, we're trying to encourage a lot more companies to enter this space. We haven't talked about space itself yet. Yeah. Satellite companies and fixed wireless companies and some of these newer companies, they might not be able to get off the ground if that regulatory framework is so onerous that you know, they can't raise capital, they can't hire the lawyers, and you know, they can never deploy a product. Yeah, all right, so I'm obviously gonna to wanna to spend a lot more time talking about the pure tech side of this and the Silicon Valley side, mm. which is not, as you said, everyone thinks it's sort of your job, but it's not quite your job. But wait, let's just do the, the space thing for a minute, because yeah. it's really interesting, because it quite literally is the, the next frontier, if not the final frontier. How in the world do you sit down with people and you know you have you have government people now trying to uh, deal with the ideas that Elon Musk and all these people are coming in with. We're privatizing a lot of the space stuff. How do you even come to a basic place where you can say, well, you can you can kind of do this, and I want you to be free, but we can't totally do that. I mean, how does that conversation even go? It's it's fascinating. First of all, it's just intellectually fascinating to me. I've yeah. always loved space, and uh, the the innovation that's happening in space right now is just unprecedented. I mean, the launches they're able to do using reusable rockets have really decreased the cost element to launching these things into space. I mean, Elon literally sent a Tesla into orbit <laughs> just just because he could do it. You know what I mean? Like it's a you didn't have a regulation around that, that you can just send a car into space? There was no, you didn't want to... Uh, no, no, were, I mean, it's, right. <laughs> yeah, no, it didn't fall within our purview, but, yeah. <laughs> uh, but certain other things do fall within our purview. So over the last two and a half years, uh, we were the first administration to approve what are called non-geostationary satellite orbit constellations, NGSOs, but essentially a lot of satellites that are being launched by companies like SpaceX and OneWeb and probably Kuiper, uh, Amazon in the future. Mm -hmm. uh, hundreds or if not thousands of these satellites in low Earth orbit, so not deep into space, but lower in the Earth's orbit so that they can beam internet access services at a speed and a price point that would be comparable to what you would get from a terrestrial provider. And my position here is very reflective of those principles we talked about from the beginning. Instead of preemptively regulating, deciding, okay, you can launch, but all of you, no, we're not going to let you do it, trying to pick a business case or a business plan that's going to work and letting them uh, take the first crack, we're taking a more market-based approach. Let's allow all of them to launch uh, in various stages using certain parameters for orbital safety and whatnot, and see what happens. Let's let the market, the aggregated decisions of consumers decide which one will succeed. And some of them might, you never know, it could be a residential broadband product. Some of them are very different. They want to do industrial internet of things. I met recently with a company that just wants to deploy 150 satellites around the globe, and they want to sign up customers like, say, the Department of Defense that has a military all around the world, and they just need essentially low bandwidth services just to let people know where the troops are at any given point in time. We, we want all of them to be able to succeed in space. And so. It's funny, you don't really think about the orbital safety portion of this, as you just oh. mentioned, but ha so it's That's almost it. like no matter what happens, you guys almost always need another office to open, right? I mean, is that sort of how it works? Because yeah. you're like, all right, I want them to put the satellites up there. We want to get people internet as fast as possible and as cheap as possible, it's all good. And then someone probably walks in and is like, you know, uh, we got to make sure these satellites aren't crashing into each other. And then you have to, do, what do you do? You do another study? I mean, do you, what are you mapping out there even? That's a good question. So that uh, goes to the earlier question you asked, what if there were no regulations? So here's where I think there is a base level of regulation that's really important, especially in the space environment. For those of you who saw Gravity, I mean, Sandra Bullock. And, right, right, we can't have these things just spinning around yeah, whacking each other. Exactly, yeah. because that stuff lasts for thousands of thousands of years. Yeah. 
especially if they don't descend in the atmosphere and burn up. And so we want to make sure that that space environment is safe for everybody. And so one of the things I kicked off about a year ago, let's see, how should we update our orbital debris rules? They were first adopted in 2004, but back then we didn't have a lot of satellites up in space. We're talking about a lot more stuff in space. Mm -hmm. And so accordingly, I think our orbital debris rules need to be updated. So we're in the middle of conversation now about how should we think about updating those rules, requiring companies to be safe. Uh, should they have to deorbit on a certain schedule, use certain technology, that kind of thing. So. Yeah, so I assume you'd prefer that everything has some sort of like time limit up there or something so that eventually it doesn't just become space garbage. Yeah, uh, that's now, one of the things we're, we're in Futurama or something. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. That's one of the things we're thinking yeah. about is should there be a time limit? Should there be a built-in technology so some of these satellites can deorbit automatically after a certain period of time? Or if there is a failure, they will automatically deorbit? Uh, things like that. And so ultimately we want to make sure that everybody can succeed in space in the long run. We don't want to like I said, in any of these orbital slots, if you have debris, that's a generational problem, not just a multi-year problem. Hiring can be a slow process. Mountains of resumes, no time to review them, or even worse, no qualified candidates. What do you do? You go to ZipRecruiter.com. Cafe Alter's COO Dylan Miskowitz needed to hire a director of coffee for his organic coffee company, but was having trouble finding qualified applicants. So he switched to ZipRecruiter. He was impressed by how quickly he had great candidates apply. He also used ZipRecruiter's candidate rating feature to filter his applicants so he could focus on the most relevant ones. Dylan found his new director of coffee in just a few days. With results like that, it's no wonder that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. I've used ZipRecruiter too, and I'm always thrilled with the candidates that they send. It's like they get me. ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you, it finds them for you. See why ZipRecruiter is effective for businesses of all sizes? Try ZipRecruiter for free at our web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash Rubin. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash R-U-B-I-N. ZipRecruiter.com slash Rubin. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. And now back to the show. How much of this is sort of long-term thinking, say, the way you would talk about the climate change situation? So it's sort of like you can, you can plot a certain degree, but no matter how much you plot, other countries, I mean, you just referenced China, other countries are just going to do things the way they want, and how complicated that makes your job. It's incredible. Meaning you could do everything exactly perfectly. Right. And still, if some other country decides to do whatever they want, you still you still have all of those problems. It's That is a problem. So there is a lot of international coordination that has to happen, especially when it comes to orbital debris. We're always working with some of the other countries' agencies to make sure that we're all on the same page. And there are international organizations that deal specifically with this. In fact, shortly coming up in Egypt, there's a big uh, quadrennial, every four years they have this conference and uh, to talk about spectrum issues. And uh, one of the issues is uh, what spectrum should be available for satellite companies. And uh, so in that context, we're always talking about being on the same page on things like orbital debris and, and spectrum allocation. But I, I think that you raise a really good point is that we could do everything correctly, but other countries are looking to take the lead on things like artificial intelligence, machine learning, or blockchain, or quantum computing, and uh, we don't have jurisdiction over all of it, but to the extent we can, we want to make sure we advance U.S. leadership, because I do think that there are some first-mover advantages uh, to countries and to sectors that really show uh, that they're willing to take the lead. Yeah, all right, let's, let's take this back to this planet for a moment. So, <laughs> all right, let's, let's really dive into the, to the tech stuff, because it's obviously near and dear to me. Now, first yeah. off, can you explain how this is not fully your jurisdiction? Because this is, this is one of the interesting things where I mentioned right before we started, you've got you know, Elizabeth Warren on the left calling for big tech regulation. You've got Tucker Carlson on the right calling for big tech re regulation. 
And it's like, all right, that's a strange, that's that little horseshoe <laughs> thing that everyone's going, well, how did this end up happening that these two people want it? They want it for very different reasons. Um, right. But can you first explain how this isn't exactly your jurisdiction? Because I think, I think everyone sort of thinks it is. When they say government involvement, I think they mean the FCC. Yeah, they often do think the FCC, and especially in the context of some of the more politically salient issues like net neutrality, they would. So in a nutshell, under current law, as Congress has set it forth for many, many years, the FCC has jurisdiction over the networks themselves, the guts of the networks. We don't necessarily have jurisdiction, or we don't have jurisdiction over the content uh, companies that go, ride over those networks. And so we don't so you, directly... So the infrastructure, basically, the pipes. It's, yes, exactly. Yeah. So the infrastructure, not so much the content that goes over those pipes. And so that that's the fundamental distinction. To the extent that an agency does have jurisdictions, primarily the Federal Trade Commission and the Department of Justice, each of which is now taking a look at some of those tech companies. Yeah. What is your, I mean, I don't know if you can speak to this as, uh, as you know, the chairman of the FCC, but what do you sort of see as the right way to deal with these, the censorship issues, you know, the shadow banning, algorithm manipulations, um, you know, suppressing search results, all of these things. Do you, do you have a general philosophy on how to deal with this? I think that obviously uh, these companies have thrived with a more light touch approach. But a couple of years ago, I did flag, uh, before it was cool, I will note, by the way, um, <laughs> I did flag the fact that consumers legitimately had some concerns, as did lawmakers, about the lack of transparency on how some of these companies operate. We don't have insight into how Facebook orders uh, articles in its news feed. We didn't have insight into how Twitter uh, might decide to... Uh, organized Twitter moments, or with Google and YouTube, I mean, we didn't have insight into demonetization and things like that. And I said, look, we need to have consistent level of regulation across the entire internet economy. It shouldn't matter whether you're a network operator or a content provider, for example, when it comes to privacy. Mm -hmm. As an online consumer, I don't care whether it's a network company or a content provider that has my inf sensitive information. I want that information to be protected. And I called a couple of years ago for a conversation about how should we think about the tech sector, these, some of these tech giants that have been completely unregulated. And now it's interesting to see, as you mentioned, uh, people from across the political spectrum are reaching this sort of odd consensus that something needs to be done. What that something is, I don't quite know, and it's up to Congress to say, but it is interesting how the conversation has evolved over the last couple of years. Is this becoming one of the weird ones that you sort of referenced before, where in a weird way, the, the big boys in the game, they kind of do want regulation now because they know that, that they'll be right. able to survive. Google's got a lot of lawyers, but that the new guys coming up, once there's more regulation, they're going to have to hit certain benchmarks to do certain things, and they just won't be able to do it. And also possibly that the problems are now so huge especially around free speech, that it's like, please regulate us. That way we don't have to think about the problems. It is very curious uh, that, that's how things have changed. So some of those companies were strongly advocating for net neutrality uh, regulations coming from Washington. Heavy-handed regulations applied to some of their network operator rivals. When California, in particular, passed a law on this subject, those companies were very much behind it. But now, the table somewhat turns. Right. California has passed a stringent privacy law. Those very same companies are coming to Washington telling Congress, we need a federal privacy law in order to get rid of this patchwork of state regulation. And I always say, under the well-established precedent of goose versus gander. You can't have it both ways. You have to be able to be intellectually consistent on this issue. And that's part of the reason why on net neutrality, on privacy, on any of these issues, let's just have an open, intellectually honest conversation about how to establish a consistent level of regulation that protects consumers and competition across the entire internet economy. I have to write that one down. I'm not familiar with goose versus gander. <laughs> I'm make a note of that one, so check that one out later. I don't have a copyright uh, on it yet, but uh, stay tuned. <laughs> um, 
Okay, so let's back up. I want because you mentioned net neutrality a couple yeah. of times. Now, about a year and a half ago or so, when net neutrality disappeared, if you were paying attention to the sort of mainstream take on it, this was it. World War III was starting. The internet oh, yeah. was over. Nobody was going to get video. Everybody was going to be throttled. You know, corporations were going to take over. Here we are. It's amazing. So can you just, all right, can you absolutely just for the people that really want like the cleanest, clearest explanation so we can clip this per perfectly, <laughs> what was net neutrality and what actually happened? So net neutrality involves the basic question of how, if at all, should the FCC treat internet access? Should it regulate it under what is called Title II, which was the 1930s regulations that were developed to regulate Ma Bell, the old telephone monopoly, or should it regulate the internet under Title I, the more market-based approach that governed the internet from 1996 until 2015? Uh, my view is the market-based approach served us very well. We got $1.5 trillion of network investment, companies like some of those uh, that we've mentioned becoming giants uh, from startups, and consumers benefiting from all that innovation. And at the end of the day, I look at the evidence that's in the record. When we made our decision in December of 2017, I kept track of some of those predictions. You're going to have to pay $5 per tweet. You're not going to be allowed to post on Instagram. One of my favorites, the Senate Democratic Caucus Twitter account said, the internet will work one word at a time. Or one of my favorites, this is the end of the internet as we know it. Well, fast forward to now. Internet speeds in the United States on average are up over 50%. Network investment wow. in 2018 was up $3 billion, the second in consecutive increase. More fiber was deployed in 2018 than in any year since they've been keeping records. And venture capital funding startups set a record in 2018. One wouldn't expect that if these internet service providers were, in fact, acting as a gatekeeper, choking off innovation. And so to those critics out there, I would say the record is clear. The internet is open and more open than ever. And thanks to our decision, more people than ever before faster than ever before can hate tweet their favorite FCC chairman. And so I think it's a testament to our success. Right. So you got an unbelievable amount of hate oh my God, during that time. Yeah, no kidding. Was that, uh, that might have led you to want to regulate some of this a little bit more. No, I mean, but, yeah, it's, but it's I guess a, you, st you stuck with your ideals. Yeah, no, I did. And, and there was a lot of pressure the, uh, on the other side, no question about it. And uh, personal threats made against me and my family and even the agency itself. There are people in jail today for threatening my family and the agency. Jeez. And so, uh, but uh, at the end of the day, uh, I really have the conviction that we were doing the right thing. And, uh, you know, I've got a, a, a quote by my computer, and I see it every single day when I power up. It is from Churchill back in the 20s. And it said, you know, hear this, young men and women, and proclaim it far and wide. The earth is yours and the fullness thereof. Be kind, but be fierce. You are needed now more than ever before. Take up the mantle of change, for now is your time. And I know it sounds cheesy, but I really do try to no. embrace that ethos that you've got to you've got to know what you believe, and you've got to execute on that belief to the best of your ability and take the arrows that come with it. Is it going to be popular always? No, not at all. I mean, I understand that a lot of people still are angry about this decision. But at the end of the day, I've got the long-term in mind, and the long-term is one in which the digital divide closes, everyone's connected to the Internet, the Internet is free and open, and that's the vision that we're going to continue to execute. Support for the Rubin Report comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Home is so much more than a house, it's your own little slice of heaven. That's why when you find the perfect place for you and your family, getting a mortgage shouldn't get in the way. Imagine how it feels to have an award-winning team by your side through every step of the mortgage process. It's awesome, and it's exactly what you get with Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Their team of mortgage experts is obsessed with finding a better way, which means that their number one goal is to make the home buying process smoother for you. Quicken Loans has helped millions of Americans 
Americans achieve their dream of home ownership. And when you're ready to purchase the home of your dreams, they can help you too. Their team cares about getting you home. That's why J.D. Power has ranked Quicken Loans highest in customer satisfaction for primary mortgage origination, nine years in a row, and highest in mortgage servicing, six years in a row. When you work with them, you get more than just a loan because Rocket Mortgage is more than just a lender. Get started online at rocketmortgage.com slash Ruben, equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states, nmlsconsumeraccess.org, number 30330. For J.D. Power Award information, visit jdpower.com. Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Push button, get mortgage. And now back to the show. Do you think, just to sort of give the people that wanted to keep net neutrality in place, to, to give the, the devil his due, let's say, um, do you think that it's just a fundamental misunderstanding of what companies do? I mean, they, the fear seemed to be that if you, if you don't regulate them in this right. way, that you know, one company will slow down Netflix and the other one will yeah. speed up their own broadband service and all these things. And there is some like, there's some like initial thought that kind of makes sense there. Like you would want to hurt your competitors if you're in right. several businesses and you'd want to help your partners. But that, that's not really how competition works. And I guess everything that you just laid out is, is sort of proof of that. I mean, yeah. do you think that they just sort of fundamentally misunderstand um, economics or, or something like that? I think well, I understand the concerns they might have in the abstract. But the two things I always try to emphasize to allay those concerns are, number one, I support Congress putting on the page in the modern era what the rules of the road should be. I mean, I would, it's a one-page bill, honestly, that Congress could pass tomorrow. No blocking of lawful content on the internet, no throttling of lawful content, no anti-competitive paid prioritization, transparency, make sure every internet service provider documents all its business uh, and network management practices for everyone to see. I've just outlined a 99% supportable bill but that's never going to happen because there's no such thing as a one-page paper that these people. Come on, you got to add in what, like five thousand more pages? Yeah, all the wherefores and bills that have something to do with farming. Oh, exactly. But this is a very simple bill that I would support. I think most members of Congress would support. But the political impulses from those who really rabidly want heavy-handed regulation. They're never going to allow that to happen. The second thing I emphasize is, look, anti, uh, antitrust and competition law has long been a very steadfast protector uh, for, of competition in this area. The FTC and the Department of Justice in particular. The Internet didn't die from 1996 to 2015 when we had this exact same framework. To the contrary, it thrived with the market-based approach. And just think about what the Internet would have been if we had treated it like Ma Bell. You would have an Internet that was just as reliable as Amtrak, as popular as the post office, as efficient as the DMV. That is the model that some people want to return to. And to me, that's not good enough. American consumers deserve better than that. Have you, I'm sure you've heard about this sort of platform versus publisher debate. Yeah. That's probably the stupidest question I've ever asked. I'm going to go, no, out, no, 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 I'm no. Going to go out on a limb and assume you've heard about this debate. Um, so for me, as a guy that wants as little regulation as possible, so I, I totally hear your, your philosophy on this. The platform versus publisher one is starting to make sense to me. This mm -hmm. is a place where I could start seeing a need for regulation because if you're just a platform, then you should you should have to do all the things that you want in your one you know your one pager. But if you're a publisher, then you have those extra responsibilities. Yet in a weird way, the platforms, say Twitter, YouTube, Facebook, are behaving like publishers and not platforms. How complex is all of this to? 
unpack? It's, it's exceptionally complex, and one of the fascinating things to watch from my vantage point is on Capitol Hill, you're now seeing Republicans and Democrats openly wondering, should we change the laws, should, you know, let's hold hearings to examine how we should change the laws to accommodate this new understanding. And uh, it's everything seems to be up for grabs right now, and I'm not sure how it's going to play out, but that debate of platform versus publisher is something that I think it was pretty much unthinkable just five years ago. So I'm not sure where it's going to go, but we're certainly watching it. Do you think it's possible that there are certain things that the government is just no longer equipped to handle? Like that the mm. power and the amount of information, the amount of technology um, that Google, let's say, controls right now is so awesome and unprecedented that the idea that a government regulatory commission could actually harness it, fully understand it, and, and fully guide it in the right way, that that almost is impossible? That's a really good that, question. That must be a pretty I, crappy thing to think about, I suppose, in, yeah, in your position. Right. But I mean, do you think that is possible, that, that these companies have grown in ways, like the, the amount of power that Google has is way more than Ma Bell had in 1930, and, the, right. and, the, and government obviously changes much slower than a technology company can? That's a good question. I think. Uh, I mean, I'd have to think about it a little deeper. I would say to first cut, I do think the tools of antitrust and competition law are fairly well suited to deal with companies that may have market power. I mean, these are well, you know, the standard oils of yesteryear are, could just as easily, that, that framework could just as easily apply to the tech giants of today and to evaluate whether or not they are posing an anti-competitive threat. What I would say is uh, the central problem we haven't yet wrestled with is that the t pace of technological innovation is quickening, if anything, mm -hmm. and we're now rapidly dealing with not just laws that are out of date, but a, a Congress that, and a regulatory structure that isn't equipped to deal nimbly with some of those challenges. To give you one example, facial recognition technology. I mean, you're now seeing a lot of people wondering, well, should we ban or should we regulate facial recognition technology? How does it work? Or cryptocurrencies, mm -hmm. how you see regulators struggling with, how should we think about this? Is it uh, another uh, financial instrument that we should regulate under the old laws, or should we just come up with something new? And across all of these different sectors, the pace is so fast that by the time we even understand what it is, uh, it's just almost too late to pass regulations because the marketplace has moved beyond it. So I think that is one of the central problems that we haven't yet grappled with. Yeah. Is the other part just that administrations change pretty quickly? I mean, yeah. we, we don't know who the president's going to be in, in about a year and a half from now. We just right. don't. And the next person could come in. And is your term, is that just on the, the decision of the president or is there no. a limit to your term? Or? Oh, so I'm a, as a, every uh, chairman is a commissioner. So I have a commissioner term that ends in 2022. Um, and But by law, the president has to designate whoever the chairman is at any given point in time. So, uh, so yeah, I do I have a term that runs independent of uh, the presidential administration that happens to be in power. But technically, the next president could just... Take, right, you pick of, take, take you out of that term. Exactly. So, right. so how much of your consideration has to do with just the political realities of all of, all of this? To, to me, zero. One of the great things about being an independent agency is that we make the decision that we think is the right one. And uh, that, generally speaking, our, our initiatives have been nonpartisan in nature. I mean, to me, at least, getting broadband to rural Americans and tribal Americans is not a Republican issue or Democratic issue. It's just an American issue. Getting people with disabilities access to technology, helping people in hurricane-ravaged areas is not a partisan issue as well. And 5G is a national imperative. So a lot of these things are actually bipartisan 
in nature or nonpartisan, I would say. And so to me, at least, that's how I've tried to embrace the job. And the other thing that goes unremarked in Washington, at least, as far as we can tell, I'm the first chairman in history ever to ask each one of the commissioners, Republican and Democrat, to take leadership to speak for the agency on an issue of importance. Traditionally, the chairman essentially hogs all of the responsibility for himself or herself. <laughs> but I've tried to delegate a lot of that to make sure that all of them feel empowered. That's good for them, but it's also good for the agency to show that, look, we're not a political agency that rises or falls based on where the political winds may happen to take us. You must be pretty enthused that like things like this exist for you to get your message out versus in the oh old days God. to the extent that somebody might want to hear some wonky stuff from the FCC chairman. It was basically done on a five-minute Sunday morning talk show, oh, and it's yeah. like now you can actually really expand on these. And things. that's why I'm so grateful to outlets like this one. I'm telling you, as somebody, I mean, a lot of your viewers are probably much younger than me, but as somebody who grew up in the late 70s and early 80s in rural Kansas, there were very few ways to get information from the outside world, virtually none to get information transmitted from you, to get your voice heard. <laughs> right. And so to go from that, where we were 30, 40 years ago, to now, where essentially the internet has democratized speech in a way that was unthinkable, is incredible to me. I mean, one example I always use is I was the first FCC commissioner on Twitter uh, back in 2012. When I joined, some of my colleagues Thank said, this is crazy, this is, you shouldn't be doing this. But <laughs> now it's enabled me to get the message out to people who are never going to be able to come to Washington or hire somebody to come to Washington on their behalf. And it's had a real impact on my work and my ability to get my voice out. There are a few issues that I've championed that have been a result of people tweeting at me and I learn more about the issue. We end up taking action that helps, in this one case in particular, save lives. Uh, the 911 calling system, we've improved thanks in part to a tweet I got back in December of 2013. What was that? What was it about? So uh, in December 1st of 2013, a woman named Carrie Hunt Dunn uh, was living in Marshall, Texas. She and her three kids went to visit her estranged husband in a hotel room in Texas. As soon as she got to the hotel room, her husband started stabbing her, and her nine-year-old daughter raced to the hotel's room's phone, started dialing 911, as everybody knows. But the call didn't go through. So she dialed 911 once again, and one more time, and one more time. She didn't realize she had to dial nine right. first to reach an outside line. So this story uh, made the local press down there. Somebody tweeted the story at me, and I started reading up, and I thought, boy, what is, I mean, that may raise my antenna. What's the situation of 911 calling around the country? Mm -hmm. So two weeks later, I was on the phone with Hank Hunt, who was Carrie's father. I uh, talked to him about the situation. A month later, I sent a letter to the CEOs of the top 10 hotel chains in the United States, as well as the Hotel and Lodging Association. A year after that, I stood next to Hank in Marshall, Texas, where we updated the American public on the progress we had made. And last year, I stood with Hank in the Oval Office as the president signed legislation named Carrie's Law after his late daughter to establish no access code required a legislation that would essentially allow direct uh, access to 911. And so to me at least, I know Twitter has been a plus and a minus for many, many sure. people, but to me at least that story, it really vindicates the power of an individual like Hank to get a story out there and to affect meaningful social change. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty incredible. And actually the, the way you just laid it out, even with the dates, I mean, the, you guys move pretty quick on this. That doesn't sound like a kind of governmental thing, right? Like within, yeah, it's, within uh, a year or so. I mean, I, for one thing that I think people will appreciate whether they like or don't like the policies we pursue is that I, I tend to be a pretty energetic person. I'd want to get things done, and I have an impatience about me that uh, just it forces me to want to take action as quick as possible. So on, a, on an issue like that, which naturally it sounds right, like because no kid would think that they have to, many adults wouldn't realize you have to press nine to get the outside yeah. number. Um, did you get any pushback from the industry that was like, we don't want 
outside access or something like that? I mean, what would, what would be the pushback yeah. on something like that? There wasn't a lot of pushback. Uh, it was more, well, what, how difficult would it be to retrofit some of the old telephone systems? Or, you know, is the government going to mandate uh, specific technology to be used? And so I think they were generally very supportive. And what I found in talking to some of the hotel owners and uh, phone manufacturers, as, as soon as they became aware of the issue, they were more than willing to make a change. In many cases, it doesn't cost any money. It's essentially just flipping a switch, so to speak, in terms of software, and you get rid of that access code. And to me, it's really gratifying. Whenever I check into a hotel room now, I always look at the phone uh, as soon as I put down my key. And it's it's great to see, you know, to dial nine, to reach emergency services, just dial 911. And millions of Americans who check into hotel rooms will never know that the FCC, that yeah. Hank had a part in that. But it, it goes to that point you were making earlier, that the longer-term value that we delivered even if it doesn't get attributed to us, uh, I, it really makes me feel good to know that we made a positive difference. So you've mentioned uh, Twitter, the good and the bad of Twitter, <laughs> yeah, right. a couple of times here. Um, we should relate some of this to generally just the election, because I don't know if you know this, but we're in an election is, year is now. Is that right? There's I, something, there's I something had no common, idea. And, and all of the sort of the hate and the good and all of it, it's all kind of ramping up, yeah. the censorship stuff and all of that. Um, do you guys have anything directly to do with when people say the, that Russian bots were hacking the election and manipulating news stories and all of these things? How, how much directly is, does that fall under your purview? It doesn't, actually. So we do follow, of course, uh, just in the popular press, some of the articles and commentary that go on about that. But that would be more within the purview of other agencies. Uh, now, I will say, in terms of cybersecurity, we do work with our other federal partners very closely. And so the Department of Homeland Security, in particular, has an agency, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, CISA. And that's led by a gentleman, Chris Krebs, who I work with uh, very regularly. I just mm -hmm. met with him last week on some of the 5G security issues. So to the extent that the actual hacking of networks is involved, we do have a seat at the table, so to speak. Do you find that the other commissioners that you have to work with basically have a similar philosophical uh, leaning? I think so. I generally speaking, when it comes to security, we're all on the same page. We want these uh, telecoms and networks to be secure. We might have different answers on how to get there, but ultimately I think we do uh, share the same goal. In fact, uh, this is one of the issues. I've uh, tapped uh, one of my Democratic uh, colleagues uh, to sp represent the agency at some of these 5G security issues precisely because I recognize that the security of these 5G networks is not a Republican issue, not a Democratic issue. And uh, it may raise some eyebrows, uh, why are you tapping somebody from the other party? But I think it's important for Americans to speak with one voice on this issue. And uh, I, I'm more than happy to share the credit. Uh, if we get the ball across the goal line, uh, that's great if he can do it. Can you talk generally, I think that's a good transition, to just like, what is the culture in Washington right now? Not even necessarily with your job, but I think everyone's yeah. feeling this thing that just the machine kind of doesn't work anymore. Everyone does everything on partisan lines. You just mentioned that you, you try not to do that. Um, but just like, what is the culture? As someone that lives and works in Washington, you know, you're, you're part of a, of a machine that, you know, administrations come and go. You're, you're still going to be there. Yeah. Um, and you know, people are always talking about that sort of thing now, like that, that, that the Washington machine just always exists. Yeah. Can you just talk about the culture a little bit? It's increasingly poisonous. I have found that uh, there's much more tribalism in Washington than ever before. And I do think it's 
I'm not sure if it's a cause or an effect of the tribalism we see in our body politic, generally speaking, but I do find it distressing a lot of the times that uh, some of the blowback I'll get on Twitter has nothing to do with me. It's just, oh, you're in, you're, you're part of the administration, so screw you. And it's right, uh, right, right. Uh, you know, that kind of knee-jerk tribalism. And conversely, on the other side, too, it's, uh, you know, if you're on the other, uh, if you're supporting one of the candidates on the campaign trail, yeah, screw you, too, I don't want to have anything to do with you. And so that kind of ethos has permeated Washington to some extent. It's, uh, it's unfortunate because I do think that at the end of the day, there are certain things that we did have a consensus on. I mean, even the free market principle, it was not that long ago that I think we had. Um, Is that the most shocking one to you? Because that one seems so bizarre to me. That, that to me, we're debating things that have, have led to all of the success that we all live in right now. And we're suddenly just tossing it up there as if these things should be debated. It would be a close second, I would say, to free speech. Uh, that's one of the issues that I think I've often said it distinguishes American democracy from virtually any other society in the world today or even in history. And, and I always say that free speech is not just the cold guarantee that's on the parchment of the Constitution. It's also a culture that emerged for many, many years uh, with great sacrifice. And it's very, you know, if you have a view that is opposed to mine, the tradition, of course, was, you know, that was that saying misattributed to Voltaire. You, I may disagree with what you say, but I'll fight for the, yeah. the right, your right to say it. Increasingly, we see that, no, people want to wall off the public square. In fact, push people out of the public square altogether if there's a dissimilarity of views. And uh, that, that is something that's extremely dangerous to this country. Have you thought of one of the interesting ideas that I've heard related to just backing up to the platforms themselves is that since these are private companies, that it's almost like let them do whatever they want, basically, but that then the government could actually get involved in creating a platform that would respect all of the laws of the United States. And that, that would be an interesting use of government money because hmm. it's like, oh, all right, Twitter can do what they want, YouTube can do what they want, but what if the government actually just had a platform that as long as you're abiding by the laws of the United States, basically you were allowed to be on there, something like that. I tend to think about it more deeply. I guess two of my concerns would be, number one, uh, the government, generally speaking, is not well positioned to, to be own and operate the, a yeah, platform yeah, like yeah. that. And the second one would be, as we saw with the debates over the Fairness Doctrine in the 1970s and 1980s, uh, that, that, that doctrine was misnamed precisely because it empowered government officials to decide, to essentially assign points based on what side of the political ledger you were on. And that is the kind of thing that I yeah. would have So basically it was the Unfairness Doctrine. I mean, people think, well, it sounded right. I mean, it's what they do with everything. It sounds right. The fairness doctrine, we're going right. to have everybody's ideas be out there equally. But at the end of the day, if the market doesn't, yeah. if some people just don't care about your ideas, why should the government be propping you up? And that's what it was doing, right? Yeah, that's always one of my concerns. The same thing uh, when it comes to spending uh, money. If somebody tells me, oh, this service or product is free, well, sometimes the only problem with free is that it costs too much and you have to always <laughs> look at the fine print. And so too when it comes to free speech issues. So I, d I do think that uh, that's one of the issues I have to think a little more deeply about, but that would be my instant reaction. Yeah. So are you are you hopeful then that our, our defense of free speech will will continue and, and that we're going to, you know, maintain this rare First Amendment thing that we've got that is the jealousy of the world? I don't know. I mean, I so when I travel around the country and I've now been to all 48 states in the continental U.S. and Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands and you meet people who are just trying to you know, put food on the table, work hard and raise their families you get a sense of that bedrock understanding of America's commitment to free speech is still strong. But my God, when you see some of these controversy emerging on you know, college campuses, on internet platforms like Twitter, it does make you worry, uh, are we going to have a generation of leaders that is committed to that ideal? And I don't know, I mean, I hope so. And I think it does, I, did, I think it does rub a lot of people of goodwill on both sides the wrong way to know that there are certain correct views and only those views should be heard in the public square. 
because you know one day your views might be viewed as incorrect, and so I know the feeling. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I do. I don't know. I, I guess this might be the naive Kansan in me, but I really do feel optimistic that that instinct uh, that runs deep in the American psyche is going to win out in the long run. But there are some very determined opponents on the other side, to be sure. So we talked about a couple of the, the future things here. So we're building this 5G network. We talked about space a little bit. But just to wrap us up nicely, what else should we be thinking about? What are the other things that are on the horizon for you guys that maybe the average person isn't thinking about that if we started thinking about it a little more clearly, yeah. we wouldn't be in the, oh, net neutrality is going away, the world is gonna end tomorrow. Oh, so let's do, let's do a little buffering for the future. <laughs> yeah, here, you know? right. So the biggest thing and we're- if you answer this right, you pro- ah, all right. I'll give you a Reese's. I'll even put the Reese's back down there. Boy, this sort of this sort of Pavlovian yeah. bribing yeah. is going to get you nowhere, <laughs> my friend. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I think uh, in conjunction with the great work we're doing on 5G and closing the digital divide, the one thing I would flag for people is how that interacts with artificial intelligence and machine learning. The networks of the future are going to be smart networks. It's not going to be a person operating locally managing a network. It's going to be software using algorithms to decide how best to optimize that network and. One of the things we've been doing, we just held the first ever forum in the FCC on artificial intelligence and machine learning last December, and I've been working with a lot of entrepreneurs on this to try to figure out what is the future, how is this going to, not, not just the automation of jobs, but how will it make us smarter? For example, if you're talking about wireless sensors that patients might wear, even when they're not in the hospital, and those sensors could transmit a very low bandwidth amounts of information, uh, your vital signs and whatnot, and an algorithm could identify, to could analyze it very quickly to determine if you need, if a healthcare provider needs to intervene quicker, that's the kind of thing we're looking at in the future. Or same mm-hmm. thing when it comes to even things like precision agriculture. Believe it or not, incredibly connected farms that are going to require AI and machine learning tools to figure out you know, by the square foot where do we need to apply fertilizer and where don't we need to apply fertilizer. I mean, across all of these industries, AI and machine learning is going to have a huge transformative effect. And I don't know what the future is, uh, but I do think it's important for us to think about it. And I didn't mean to gloss over the automation factor. That's another thing as well that I hear some concern about. If you're a long-haul trucker or mm-hmm. even a lawyer or a pharmacist, increasingly those jobs are getting disrupted. And yeah. I do think it's important to have a conversation about the future of work. Uh, that's not necessarily the FCC's bailiwick, but I do think it's a larger social phenomenon that uh, some people are worried about, some people are optimistic about, and uh, I'm not sure where the conversation will go. But you know, since you made a Yoda reference before, I really thought you were going to drop a Skynet Terminator reference there. <laughs> yeah, but, right. <laughs> but I mean, really, that, that yeah. is it. Like, how much power will we give to the machines, and does the day come when yeah. suddenly you know, they're in charge, and then they go, ah, well, the humans should probably have less power. Yeah, I was, I was joking with one of my friends the other day. I don't know if you saw WALL-E, uh, but yeah, way back yeah, when. Yeah. It's gonna, we're the, we're is the future going to be like WALL-E or the Matrix, uh, the worst case? You know, WALL-E, where they do all the workforce. Well, Matrix were essentially batteries for everybody else. But it's, uh, I mean, I'm pretty sure we're in some mix of both of those right now. Yeah, it's turtles all the way down, my friends. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a pleasure chatting with you. Thanks for coming in. And you guys can follow Chairman Pai on Twitter. Tell him everything that you think about net neutrality, the good, bad, and the ugly. I apologize for that. <laughs> uh, at Ajit Pai FCC. 